Welcome to Native America Calling. I'm Sean Spruce. Hank Adams is known for his work on treaty fishing rights, work that led directly to the landmark Bolt decision. But his legacy on a number of treaty and civil rights issues continue to reverberate. He was a skilled negotiator who connected with people from diverse cultures and viewpoints. Today, we remember Hank Adams and his contributions to securing sovereignty and rights for Native Americans. We'll hear from those who knew him right after the news. This is National Native News. I'm Antonia Gonzalez. Thousands of pages from historical newspapers near and on tribal nations in Montana are now available and searchable online through the Library of Congress. Yellowstone Public Radio's Kayla DeRoche reports. The Montana Historical Society recently finished a two-year project where they archived more than 100,000 newspaper pages dating back to the early 1900s. Library manager Dan Corrales says those include, for the first time, pages from the communities of Browning on the Blackfeet Indian Reservation, Harlem by Fort Belknap, Hot Springs on the Flathead Indian Reservation, and Poplar on the Fort Peck Indian Reservation. Newspapers that might have more native news, might have more coverage of tribes. And then those towns are also just kind of underrepresented in terms of our digital holdings. The Montana Historical Society received $263,000 from the Library of Congress and the National Endowment for the Humanities for the project. The new additions are on the Library of Congress website. For National Native News, I'm Kayla DeRoche. The children's book Kundalan, the Wolf Pup with Moonlight in Her Eyes, was released last November, the third in a series. Seattle's Burke Museum of Natural History and Culture held the release party for author Sandra Segundo. As KMBA's Jill Freitas reports, it's translated in both Haida and English. Segundo was a former teacher and left her full-time job to pursue reviving the Alaska Haida language, a critically endangered language. She felt in order to do that, she needed to start with the children. There were no indigenous authors, especially children's book authors at that time. I searched high and low for good books that represented my people correctly. So I started writing my books so my three children could see themselves represented. Kundalan tells the story of a wolf pup who takes an exciting trip to the moon, and it's inspired by ancient Haida stories. Kundalan is among the first children's books to ever be published entirely in Alaskan Haida. Segundo says creating these books went far beyond telling stories. Due to a ban on speaking the native language in schools back in the late 1800s, Segundo says the language continued to die with every generation. Still, she says, the elders tried their best to instill their indigenous culture to the children. They protected our culture, but in the safe places in our village, we would be singing, laughing, telling stories in Haida and eating our traditional foods. Uh, and I just remember them closing doors and curtains and you know, to teach us sometimes just because they were so punished for just being indigenous and speaking our language. And I just want to take everything back that they tried to take from us. Now residing in Seattle, Segundo speaks passionately about her upbringing in Heidelberg, Alaska. I grew up surrounded by birth speakers and I didn't really know how um, blessed I was at the time hearing their 
voices in their songs and they planted a lot of songs in me and words in me because I love to sing. I love music. So um, I just was like a sponge. During the book release party, Segundo read aloud all three of her books, Kundlan, The Wolf Pup with Moonlight in His Eyes, Orca Eyes, and Lovebirds, The True Story of Raven and Eagle. She also gave an art lesson and taught the audience a Haida dance. Also in the books, which Segundo illustrated herself, she has songs all translated in Haida and says at the end of the day, speaking and singing your native language is what keeps your culture alive. I'm Jill Freitas. And I'm Antonia Gonzalez. National Native News is produced by Kiwanak Broadcast Corporation with funding by the Corporation for Public Broadcasting. Support by Vision Maker Media, envisioning a world changed and healed by understanding Native stories and the public conversations they generate. 45 plus years of Native stories and Indigenous knowledge through film and media can be found at visionmakermedia.org. Support for law and justice-related programming provided by Hobbs, Strauss, Dean & Walker, LLP, a national law firm dedicated to promoting and defending tribal rights for over 40 years. More information available at HobbsStrauss.com. Native Voice One, the Native American Radio Network. This is Native America Calling, your National Humanities medal-winning radio show and podcast. Hank Adams worked side-by-side on the fight for fishing rights in Washington State with Billy Frank. He also helped negotiate a peaceful end to the Wounded Knee occupation. He helped organize the March on Washington and the Poor People's Campaign with Martin Luther King Jr. A citizen of the Fort Peck Assiniboine Sioux Tribe, Adams' advocacy extended beyond U.S. borders, including campaigns on behalf of indigenous people in Nicaragua. Native scholar Vine Deloria Jr. referred to him as the most important Indian of his time. In a reflection of how Native Americans were viewed during that era, a Nixon White House aide paid him a backhanded compliment, saying Adams could speak both Indian and American. He was an able political strategist and communicator. He was connected with Hollywood celebrities and tribal leaders alike. Adams died in December 2020. Today we'll get perspectives on his legacy from those who knew him, and we welcome listeners to the conversation. Do you remember Hank Adams? Do you remember the fishins in the Pacific Northwest? Share your comment or question by calling 1-800-996-2848. That's also 1-800-99-NATIVE. And you can also leave a comment on our social media pages. Speaking with us now from Washington, D.C. is Suzanne Schoen Harjo. She is the president of the Morning Star Institute and a longtime friend of Hank Adams. She is Cheyenne and Hodogi Muskogee. Hi, Suzanne. Great to have you back on NAC. Thanks, John. Sean. <laughs> Thank you, Suzanne. Appreciate it. From Richmond, Virginia, we have Dr. David E. Wilkins. He is a Claiborne Robbins Distinguished Professor in Leadership Studies at the University of Richmond, and he is Lumbee. 
David, welcome back to NAC as well. Thank you very much. And joining us from Tahola, Washington is Natalie Charlie. She is Hank Adams' niece. She is a Quinault tribal member and also Fort Peck, Fort Peck Assiniboine Sioux. Good morning, Natalie. So good to have you on today's show. Good morning, Onogwitu. And joining us is Mark Trahant in Phoenix, Arizona. He is the editor-at-large for ICT, and he is Shoshone Bannock. Hello, Mark. Welcome back to Native America Calling. Thank you. Glad to be here. Well, I really appreciate all of our guests on the show today. Suzanne, I want to go ahead and start with you. And as noted in our introduction, Hank Adams was a champion of so many causes, from Martin Luther King Jr. to the Fishins in Washington State. What was a driving motivation for him to embrace a cause? Justice, justice, and justice. Justice, justice, and justice. What I find so remarkable and amazing about people like Hank is he put it all on the line. I, literally, he put his life on the line. He was even shot, shot with a gun, defending fishing rights. What did those experiences, how did they impact him? Did that ever in any way lessen his resolve or make him question the work he was doing, or did it just strengthen his resolve? I'm curious. His resolve, everything. Uh, every adversity that he uh, overcame uh, strengthened his um, ability, his, uh, honed his skills, and, um, and clarified his goal or re-clarified his goal. He was very goal-oriented, um, uh, a, a really important thought leader of my generation, and he was um, someone who who gave us so many ideas. He had so many parts to his strategy that, and was so, he was not just a strategist, he was also an impresario. He was very good at mixing and matching people and ideas and he was a very good speech writer, <clears throat> and you know, in, in order to, <clears throat> I'm sorry, in order to um, be a good speech writer, you have to be able to speak in the voice of the person you're writing the speech for. Mm -hmm. And he wrote countless speeches for Billy Frank, and um, Billy Frank added his own touches, of course, and was was a genius in his own way. Uh, Hank was a very organized and, and reasoned thinker and could <clears throat> could enlist people in doing things and he knew how to how to uh, persuade people he knew how to attract them and how to persuade them okay. uh, he or, or, uh, organized the Indian contingent at the 63. Uh, March on Washington, and he was part of the steering committee of Dr. King's um, Poor People's Campaign in 1968 and sat on it for uh, a month uh, and thereafter, but then Dr. King was assassinated uh, at that time. Well, let's talk about that a little bit, Suzanne, because today is Martin Luther King Jr. Day. 
how did Hank become involved with the famous civil rights leader? He paid attention. He was he was um, a young person in involved with um, the organizers and the activists of the day, not only in fishing rights and treaty rights in the Pacific Northwest, but with the National uh, Indian Youth Council. And he was a special projects um, staff person and sort of like a, a freelance person. He wasn't one of the founders of NIYC in 61 and 62, but he uh, right at that same time was enlisted uh, by Mel Tom and uh, others who were founders and officers mm-hmm. of NIYC. And that, that they, he and Mel Tom organized the, um, they worked with, with people in um, people of color in the Pacific Northwest uh, on the fishing rights struggle. And then that all, and they were very good at, at saying, we're with you on civil rights, we're with you on equal rights, but know that the opponents of treaty rights, the, the anti-Indian hate groups that are organized to get rid of treaties, say it's because they're doing it in the name of equal rights mm-hmm. and that Native people should not have treaties because those are special rights. Well, that notion was done away with court after court and uh, decision after decision. So that okay. that's not sound reasoning or sound law. But he was very good at, at changing the conversation and adding to the conversation and showing our solidarity plus our distinctiveness. Changing the conversation. And Suzanne, you mentioned uh, his ideas and his way of thinking. And I think what's so fascinating about Hank Adams is unlike so many of kind of the classic activists of that era, he didn't have that militant uh, image that we so often think of with activists from that time. Why was that? Why, why did he take this different approach? He was more of, of a thinker and more, a more, more nuanced and a more complex type of mindset that went into that work. Well, everyone was called a, ra- a radical or a militant uh, if you spoke up for Native rights, if you, uh, if you were proud of being Native, if you didn't act like a toady, if you, uh, if you were engaged in the most orderly processes there were, which are court cases, uh, as the, everyone in the Pacific Northwest was engaged in, you were automatically called a radical or a militant. Everyone in NIYC was called that, and that was true through all the mm-hmm. through the uh, litigation that that I'm known for uh, regarding the Washington football team's okay, former vile name. I'm sorry, Sam, but but he was um, he was viewed as kind of an intermediary. I mean, the federal government looked at him as somebody that they could. I mean, that quote and is, is kind of misguided as it sounds. He was. He could talk both Indian and American. I mean, he definitely could work that other side, and he knew how to bridge that gap between what some of the other activists were doing and uh, what was happening with the federal government in Washington, D.C. and elsewhere. Well, he was very involved with um, uh, going to Washington and going and and engaged in 
tribal politics, intertribal politics, and policy work from a very young age when he uh, worked for um, for the the leadership at at, uh, at Quinault Nation, and he um, so he knew how to he understood systems very well and picked up on how to how to deal with Capitol Hill, uh, how to deal with appropriators, how to know the difference between an authorization and an appropriation, and he understood all of that and how to make friends. He and, and so he, did uh, so did everyone of the time who was doing the treaty work. So it was it, it, everyone was called a, a militant or a radical at the same time that they were engaged in orderly processes. Sure, sure. And what's also astounding is he did all of that without ever having gone to law school. He wasn't even an attorney, and yet in some ways they say he had a more brilliant legal mind <laughs> than any of the attorneys of that era. <laughs> <laughs> well, a whole lot of people, myself included, uh, just barely made it through high school. <laughs> no, we did fairly well in high school, but uh, you could say the same thing. That, that uh, and, and you you don't need to be a lawyer to to work on drafts of laws to have ideas about how laws should be changed. You just have to be an Indian rights person who understands the history and where things went wrong and how they went wrong to appreciate how to undo them. We're talking now with Suzanne Schoenharjo, who is reminiscing about uh, her good friend, Hank Adams, uh, the late Native American activist. If you remember Hank Adams, if you remember some of his work, give us a call. Share what you know. 1-800-99-NATIVE. For Northern Cheyenne, January is a time for reflection on a tragic event from 1879. In addition to organizing a run to commemorate the Fort Robinson Massacre, tribal representatives are working to change the official historical narrative. We'll hear more about it on the next Native America Calling. Support for this program provided by Vision Maker Media, who envisions a world changed and healed by understanding Native stories and the public conversations they generate. Nurturing the next generation of storytellers with courage, generosity, creativity, respect, and commitment. 45-plus years of Native stories and Indigenous knowledge through film and media can be found at visionmakermedia.org, whose slogan is, Together We Are Vision Makers. Thank you for listening to Native America Calling. I'm Sean Spruce. We are discussing the life and work of Native political strategist and activist Hank Adams. Do you have a comment or question about Hank Adams? Do you remember the issues that he was involved in? Join this conversation, 1-800-996-2848. Phone lines are open. That number again, 1-800-996-2848. Give us a call. We'll put your comments on the air. That's how it works. Our next guest, Dr. David E. Wilkins, uh, was an author and editor of The Hank Adams Reader, which included a collection of Hank's writings. David, what inspired you to start that project? Well, I was a student of Vine Deloria's uh, in the early 1980s, and, and we uh, had a relationship that grew from that. Um, and knowing Vine, you also were introduced to, to Hank Adams. Um, and um, 
when Vine walked on in 2005, I decided to do, to do a, a short political biography of Deloria. And in the process of going through his papers and, and gathering the, gather the things that he had written, the, the copious things he had written, I discovered that short article that you referenced earlier that was simply titled The Most Important Indian. And it was an article he had written in 1973 about Hank. Um, and I, I hadn't met Hank at the time, but I, I would le meet him later at conferences on treaty rights in D.C. that were put together by Helen Shearbeck. And that, that, that title that Vine gave to Hank just really, really inspired me. And I said, I want to know more about uh, this gentleman. Um, and so after Vine walked on, I, I began to meet Hank regularly at the, the Vine Delory Symposium held on the Lemmy Reservation every summer. Uh, and he began to come to that pretty consistently. And I asked him one day if I would, if he would allow me to put together a collection of his, of his writings. And he was kind of demure about it, and it really, he never wanted to draw attention to himself. He he rather, he would rather allow the issues to to be uh, at the forefront rather than personality. Um, but he he agreed reluctantly to let me do that. And then he began to share uh, where he had little caches of documents that he had written at different libraries around the country. Uh, and there were three major repositories. And as I pulled all those together, I just I began to realize how prolific he had been, even though he wasn't widely published in terms of books and articles, he had written tons of materials, many of the things that Suzanne was talking about, um, uh, you know, memorandums, uh, letters, uh, uh, special reports to Congress. He chaired the... Uh, the, the the task force on treaties and the trust responsibility of the of the American Indian Policy Review Commission. He just did a ton of stuff, and I felt like even though certain people in the movement knew about him by the pivotal role he played in the Trail of Broken Treaties and Wounded Knee Two, and particularly in the fishing rights struggle, struggle that you alluded to, not not enough people knew about how dynamic and how visionary he was in all that mm -hmm. he had did. He truly was an Indian diplomat, uh, and, uh, and 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 that di his diplomatic school skills made a huge difference in all the battles that we were engaged in. A diplomat, a diplomat. Thank you, David. What do you think set him apart then from other Native activists from his time period? Was it primarily those diplomatic skills that he possessed? I, I think that was that was a big part of it, and also the fact that he did, he never craved attention. He loved to work behind the scenes, and he loved to put people out front like, like, like Vine and, 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 and Billy Frank uh, and, and other people. He craved attention to detail, and as, as Suzanne said, the, the hot pursuit of justice because that's, that's what he was most concerned with. And it was justice not only for indigenous peoples but for all disempowered peoples, which is why he got so involved in the poor people's movement and other campaigns uh, you mentioned his trip down to uh, Nicaragua to learn more about what was happening and express his solidarity with the Mosquito people. He was always concerned about justice for all human beings, particularly those that have been deprived of their essential rights uh, and, and humanity. David, as you share, Vine Deloria Jr. called him <laughs> the most important Indian. That is, I, I, I can't think of a bigger compliment that uh, somebody could pay to, to somebody, especially during that era. What do you think Vine Deloria Jr. meant exactly by that phrase, the most important Indian of that era or of that period? 
I, I think it's, he, he simply meant that he knew that Hank was largely a self-educated man. He had those nearly two years at, at University of Washington where he attended, but he simply learned. I mean, he had a voracious uh, memory uh, and, and voracious appetite for knowledge, just like just like Vine did. Um, and, and and Vine was always impressed with the fact that Hank never forgot anything that he read, apparently. And when you read his many works on treaties, his, his analyses of the 1854 and 1855 treaties that were the bedrock foundation for what became the Bolt decision, no one knew the law better than Hank on, 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 those, on those important subjects. Um, and I'll just read you one short clip, uh, one of those statements that Vine wrote in, in that one short article he wrote. He said, eventually Hank won his legal point at, le at, at least with the experts on the Indian side, and while many of the people hated to admit it, they had to conclude that Hank, a layman with no legal training, knew more about Indian treaty law than almost any of the lawyers working in the field. <laughs> uh, and so Vine really admired the heck out of that, um, and he just knew that Hank was always committed to the issues and to justice and the pursuit of what was right, and he didn't care for attention. He didn't care for glamour. He didn't care for uh, the fame and, and fortune that other, uh, some other uh, leaders were seeking. He was out to make things right. Well, it really makes me wonder what was it about Hank Adams? What was it in his childhood? Was it in his upbringing? What was it that created this this fierce intellectualism and this leadership? And and to get some answers there, let's go ahead and bring Natalie into our conversation now. She is Hank Adams' niece. She's joining us from Tahola, Washington. And Natalie, I uh, really appreciate you joining us uh, on the show today. And we also have um, your mother uh, on the show, who is uh, your uncle's sister, uh, Lois Adams Charlie. Hello, Lois. Are you on the line there? I'm here. Okay, Hello. great. Wonderful. Natalie and Lois, really appreciate both of you joining us. And Natalie, I'm going to go ahead and start with you. What do you remember most about your uncle, aside from all of, of the, the legal battles and, and the movements and the causes that he embraced? What was he just like as your uncle? He was, uh, he was the type of uncle that you never knew when he was going to show up. Um, he, because he was so Okay, we're having a little bit of difficulty hearing uh, Natalie. Lois, are you there? Yes, I am. Okay, I'm going to go ahead and let you just continue a little bit more. What do you remember most about your brother? Um, that, well, uh, he was always uh, there if we needed him. And uh, I used to say he got all the brains in the family <laughs> because he, he did have, like, uh, a memory that uh, he never forgot, forgot uh, things that he'd learned. Um, he, uh, he was okay. always kind, a kind person and kind and uh, this, this and legal caring. Yeah. Caring. Okay. Uh -huh. Well, Lois, earlier, I, I was curious. I mean, where do you think his drive, where do you think your brother's ambition came from? Was it from your childhoods or was it later? What, any defining uh, moments that you can think of? 
I think when he was in uh, in high school, uh, he uh, that's when he I think he first became started becoming uh, involved in um, the kind of work that he did with uh, for Native people. Uh, he was valedictorian of his class. He when he was a freshman he. Uh, got the school. He was awarded the school citizenship award, um, and um, okay. I believe that's when he first, you know, started becoming aware of uh, problems with uh, the Native American uh, issues. And Lois, you and your brother, you grew up in Montana, is that right? Well, no, actually, we were there. Um, we left there when he was a child. We lived in Oregon uh, until he was, I believe, in junior high, and we lived in Longview, Washington for a couple of years. Actually, we lived there earlier, too, uh, and we moved to Tahola, uh, I believe, when he was a freshman in high school to the Quinault Nation. Okay, thank you. Thank you for that clarification, Lois. Natalie, uh, good to have you back on the line. So you were telling us what you remember most about your uncle, and I love stories like that. You said he would just randomly appear at times. Tell us more. Yes, hopefully you can hear me now. I will speak loudly, hopefully not too loudly. But, you know, I remember when I, I was in a play in high school, and Pretty soon I looked out in the audience and there was Uncle Hank. You just never knew when he was going to show up. And I think my siblings could all see the same because he loved to watch um, us play uh, ball, especially our kids. And my sister Alice, her her uh, youngest son, you know, he was battling cancer. And so, you know, my Uncle Hank would show up and be there with his camera videoing my nephew. He would just just be fascinated with watching Marcus play, you know, and so he just loved just showing up and, and he didn't, he was so busy working on the important things that he was working on. So he never knew when he could show up, but then there he'd be, you know, at a wedding, at a funeral, at, um, you know, wherever there was some type of event where we were involved. And I just feel like he, you know, he he loved us. We knew he loved us, even though we knew he had a lot of important work. Mm -hmm. Natalie, one of the obituaries written about your uncle hinted that he was eccentric. What do you think they were referring to? I think that he he didn't go about the same way anybody else did. He he was um, he worked during the night. He slept during the day. He, like I said, he showed up unexpectedly at different events, and he was very quiet. And, of course, the word that I always hear is unassuming, um, but he was very uh, uh, aware. He, he was aware of the people around him. But when it came to actually working on important um, things, we knew that when he had to go and, and get those things done and, and – we were in awe of him, and we just loved that he was the way he was. 
Now, I read in one article that, that he took a, an oath of poverty. Tell us more about that. What was his lifestyle like? He really did. He drove the same vehicle. He wasn't into getting a new, you know, vehicle. He, in fact, actually an interesting thing about him was that he had this Dodge Charger, and I was in high school. And so he drove it from D.C. to Olympia, I don't know how many times, and then he decided to get a new used car. And so he knew I was in high school and needed a vehicle, and he sold it to me for a dollar. <laughs> so, uh, but so, and he didn't collect material material things. The most important things to him were the paperwork that, you know, with all of the legal um, briefings, uh, laws, writings, um, all those things were what's important, and the people behind them. You could see that his his near and dear friends were were important as well and suzanne of course was one of them and some of the other uh folks uh ramona bennett and just a small circle but yet there was larger circles and larger circles because of the work that he did it was all important so a dodge charger for for one dollar that had to have been the <laughs> the deal of the century there now natalie earlier we heard David, and, and he mentioned uh, your uncle's campaign for the Mosquito Indians in Nicaragua in the 1980s. Can you talk about what he did there? Well, at that time, I was working as executive secretary for Joe Delacruz, uh, and we knew he had gone over to check on the mosquito, mosquito Indians over there because he was concerned about their plight when there was uh, the fight between the Contras and the Sandinista government. And at that time when I became really upset and worried for him was when um, they were trying to get back out. So he was there. He took pictures of the Mesquite Indians and their how they were put into uh, servitude for one side or the other to fight the battle. And their their villages were right in the middle of the of the battle, of the battles, I should say. And so, um, so later on, he showed us pictures. But at that time, I was fearful for his life because he and Russell Means were uh, trying to get back out, and the they were bombing at him, you know, shooting. They found out that they were there, and so there were some scary times where. I was pleading with Joe Delacruz, please try to find a way to get my uncle out and and on Russell Means and and so it just shows that he really uh, fought for those and put them first before himself. Um, and I don't know if there's much writing about this because he didn't care if it was published to the world or not. He was trying to. Uh, make sure that they were okay and so so that's my uncle he really did care about those and place others before himself or any type of accolades for himself natalie we're going to take a break in about another minute but what do you want people to remember most about your uncle that's a great question i i know for 
me, I would love for them to remember him as someone who really, he didn't just put on his badge to get out there and fight for Indian country. He did it to make change, to affect change in our communities, in our lives, and to protect uh, the treaties that were we had agreed on with the U.S. government. And so I feel like he he did the things because he cared, because he strongly believed and was, you know, had the greatest conviction for making sure, and I think Suzanne Harjo said it right, for justice, to make sure that we were able to uh, exercise those rights that we have, that were asserted by, you know, through the treaties and so forth, so... Natalie Charlie and her mother, Lois Adams Charlie, talking about their close relative who passed away in 2024. Stay with us. We'll be right back. Are you a Native American health care provider, recovery counselor, social worker, domestic and sexual abuse advocate, or traditional healer working in Native American communities? Dr. Ruby Gibson will begin an advanced immersion in healing historical trauma. This online master class in somatic archaeology uses the lens of a seven-generational recovery approach providing powerful modalities and is offered tuition-free to tribal members. Registration deadline is March 1st. Info at freedomlodge.org who support this show. You're listening to Native America Calling. I'm Sean Spruce. Still time to join our conversation today about the legendary Native activist Hank Adams who passed away in December of 2020. Give us a call, 1-800-996-2848 or just 1-800-99-NATIVE. We're speaking with the family of Hank Adams now. We heard earlier from Natalie, Charlie, and now I also want to ask uh, Hank's sister, Lois Adams, Charlie. Lois, how would you like for people to remember your brother going forward? Um, well, uh, the fact that he did work towards making change for Native American people and um, he did have a sense of humor, but uh, that some mm-hmm. people didn't really uh, totally understand, but uh, he did have a sense of humor. And he was... Uh, Lois, oh, do you remember any, any funny stories or, or any funny jokes specifically that he would tell or just any anecdotes that, that just still, when you think back and you reflect, they make you laugh? Uh, I, uh, not anything in particular, no. Yeah. Well, I really appreciate you, Lois, joining our show today and also Natalie and just giving us that, that personal perspective of, of your close relative, your brother and your uncle, Hank Adams, uh, wonderful, wonderful memories. And, uh, again, condolences to, to you and your family as well. And with that, let's go ahead and bring Mark Trahant into our conversation now. Again, he is the editor at large for ICT. And Mark, thank you again for joining the show today. And shortly after Hank Adams passed away, you wrote an article for ICT. It was titled, Hank Adams, Indian Country's Prolific Genius. And 
what, what do you think made Hank Adams so effective in his work, particularly the work he did with Billy Frank and the fishing rights? Well, I think, uh, as the other guests have mentioned, it was his um, ability. I think he had more resources than any archive in the country because he would pull up documents that nobody had even thought of for a long time and then immediately add context to those documents. Uh, Billy Frank, and I love the way that um, he always addressed him. He never called him Hank. He always called him Adams. And um, Billy always um, would talk about how Adams was the one doing this and that under the radar, but providing the intellectual rigor to then take the next step for whatever they were working on at the time. That's fascinating. Now, we've heard a little bit about his his negotiation skills, working behind the scenes, uh, especially with the Nixon administration during the AIM Trail of Broken Treaties. And what can you say about his skill as a negotiator and also as a diplomat? Because it just seems like that was such a crucial part of his repertoire of skills. I, I think it was his ability to say what he meant and to be absolutely honest in his communication so that if he made, um, he wouldn't go too far and say, I can do this or deliver it, but he would say, this is what I'll take to folks and see what we can do. Brad Patterson, for example, who was the White House um, aide during Nixon, told me that he was the one person they felt they could actually talk to in the sense that they could get something done. And it wasn't just that the communication style, it was this, here's what's possible and being able to zero in on that particular part of it. Uh, you mentioned his uh, sense of humor, and I do have one story about that, is after uh, the takeover of the BIA in Washington, uh, Hank had been instrumental in helping everybody get out of that situation. And when he went back to Washington State, um, the FBI was intent on punishing him, even though he was the one that um, had negotiated everything uh, in terms of the um, ending of the situation. And they went and they confiscated some of his papers. And what really galled him was they took away his typewriter. <laughs> and he would just joke about how they even <laughs> took his typewriter. And um, they could not get a grand jury to indict him for that. The FBI completely overreached in that sense. And when they tried to punish him for uh, what he had been doing. <laughs> that is a good story. Uh, no good deed goes unpunished, but but I guess ultimately he, he was unpunished for that. So that's good news, Mark. Now, you also have a, a story about Hank meeting Martin Luther King in Atlanta, Georgia. Tell us that one. Um, it was it's, it's really incredible about this. And Hank is the one that told me the story. It was um, not long before um, Martin Luther King was killed. So he had been working on the Poor People's Campaign in 1968, and he went to Atlanta in April and met for planning with uh, Dr. King. The next day, he went back to Washington, D.C., where he was uh, in another meeting with Tom Turin and Edgar Kahn, who were uh, prominent lawyers at the time. And um, there was a reporter there for the Washington Star, and again, this goes to a sense of humor. Uh, a reporter for the Washington Star was trying to get as much dirt as possible on uh, Martin Luther King. And um, Hank said, I didn't tell him anything, but he kept at it and kept at it. And um, while he was in that office, um, so this must have been April 8th, is when uh, Dr. King was assassinated. Mm. And um, so that was just eight days after their meeting in Atlanta. 
And he said the reporter was so bent on destroying the civil rights movement that he wrote the same story of the anecdotes he was going to tell about Martin Luther King. He used them to try to discredit Ralph, Ralph Abernathy. So, I mean, Hank's point was that the story was written before he ever talked to him anyway. <laughs> yeah, just instant hack job, just add water, it sounds like. Geez. Well, Mark, exactly. when did you first meet? When did you first meet Hank Adams? Well, it actually comes through another family connection. So um, my great-grandfather was a man named Walter Clark at Fort Peck. I uh, lived in Fraser, Montana, and he's also uh, Lois's grandfather and uh, Natalie's great-grandfather. And um, I wrote a column about um, Walter Clark, and Hank wrote me a long, detailed letter. And um, it was interesting because ever since then, I would get incredibly long, detailed letters about uh, family history or connections. Or what I really loved is when he'd send photographs. And um, his attention to detail, whether it was on a treaty right or a family story, was just extraordinary. Now, we've talked about so many of the issues and causes that Hank Adams worked on. Mark, have we missed anything? Are there any other issues or bodies of work or accomplishments of Hank Adams that we need to recognize before we wrap up the show? Well, I do think the big one is um, his role as an archivist. I mean, we've talked about his um, great strategy and his ability to connect with people on a um, basic language, you know, using the language to um, evoke emotion or what he wanted to get out of it. But the, the, his ability to have access to documents and photographs and treaties, things that have been overlooked by everybody else. I, I, I never had gone to his house, but I always just imagined stacks and stacks of paper. In fact, he told me that, that there were stacks and stacks of paper that he uh, one day would hope to organize. And um, I, I see that role of, of just collecting stuff as something that is maybe one that's not told as often. Now, Mark, when we think of of leaders, um, you know, it's just it's so sad. We've lost so many of these leaders now from from this generation, from the Hank Adams generation. And um, but going forward, what do, what do you think will be the lasting legacy of Hank Adams 50 years from now in Indian country? What will people be saying well, about think, Hank Adams? I do think leadership is the right word. And um, he once described himself. Well, he didn't know he was talking about himself, but he said leadership is not the person who holds office, but the leaders are the people who act through the agencies of others. And um, I really thought about that over the years, um, that he was speaking about himself, even though he would have said he wasn't, because it shows that um, it's not the ability to hold an office that matters. It's the ability to get things done. And Hank's legacy was the ability to get things done in a really positive I think he and he found ways to evoke the better selves in all of us in trying to reach for that justice that Suzanne talked about earlier. Thanks a lot, you know, Mark. When we talk about, oh, no, go I ahead. Just Continue, add, please. When we talk about the lessons we've lost from that era, I really think it's important that we have canons of stories that we tell about ourselves and how we got to this place. It's so easy to think about something that happened last week or last year 
and not add the context of how we got there. And throughout the last half, particularly of the 20th century, Hank Adams is part of the reason we got there. His, um, not just his thought process, but his documentation. I mean, maybe that's one of the reasons the Nixon people loved him. So is when he would go into a meeting, it wouldn't just be him talking. He would then pull out the documents and say, this was said in 1942, this built on in 1953, and here we now are in 1968, and you've got to do this. So there was an A, B, C that got us to D. It wasn't just uh, out of the top of his head. Mm. So he had the data. He had the data to back up what he said, and he had the research. He had he had all his ducks in a row. Really fascinating. Thank you, Mark. And Suzanne, I want to pivot back to you now, and because earlier you talked a lot about uh, – Hank's accomplishments and, and Hank's legacy, but you also worked very closely with Hank as well in a lot of these projects, a lot of these movements. Tell us, tell us a story or two about what you remember about just working side by side with Hank. Well, I, I, I want to answer the question about his humor, and most of it was self-deprecating, uh, and I'll give an example of that. He he said that after he met. Marlon Brando, in connection with the 63 March on Washington, that um, Marlon invited him to his home uh, on Mulholland Drive out there in L.A. to um, talk about treaty rights and tell him what he meant by fishing rights and all of that. So Hank went there, and he said he... um, started talking to him, and Marlon Brando was staring at him very intently. And um, he he thought, oh, I'm, uh, this is, I'm doing well. I'm doing this. This is a good presentation. And he backed up to a, a, a mantle, a fireplace mantle, and put his arm on the mantle. And he said, I posed and gave uh, more information than kind of a speech. And and uh, he said, the the more I would talk, Mar- the more Marlon would look at me, and and uh, uh, I, I'm really doing well. And at the end of it, um, he said, he said Marlon Brando said, "Could I fix your teeth?" <laughs> <laughs> oh, <geez. laughs> so Hank uh, <laughs> Hank was always telling on himself. And uh, and it, what it, and and under, he understood so much about people's expectations, and what what provided lessons uh, also for for the listeners. And um, anyway, I just loved him. He was wonderful, lovely man, and um, <laughs> a, a dear dear friend, and and uh, a relative in the in the cosmic sense. Suzanne, I'm interested in, in finding out, did uh, Marlon Brando end up uh, fixing Hank's teeth or not? <laughs> I'd imagine he had the money to do it. Yeah, that's right. And, and, well, and that says a lot about Marlon Brando, too, that he was, you know, thinking of uh, how can I help this this young man uh, who was... Uh, uh, 20 at that time um, that he organized the Indian contention of, of the uh, March on Washington. Um, I, I'm sure Marlon was thinking, how can I help this young man be good in what he does? Mm-hmm. And 
I, I thought it was a nice story about both of them. Thanks, Suzanne. Dr. David Wilkins, back to you. Uh, we're starting to wind down the show, but we've got a couple of minutes. Uh, any other stories or any other insights that you'd like to add today as we celebrate the legacy of Hank Adams? Um, I, I think we've covered a lot of um, about Hank's life that was uh, exceptional and it made him truly an exemplary uh, individual. And, and, and I, I like the fact that, that you all put this program on, on, on MLK Day um, because they really were close uh, in, 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 in fundamental ways. Um, but one other issue um, that I, I think Hank contributed to that he's not often given much credit for is his ability to write. Because of his copious archival library in his home, uh, you know, Vine called on him when when Vine began to have questions about the identity, the indigenous identity of the guy then known as Jamaki Highwater. Uh, and, and Vine encouraged Hank uh, to do an, an investigative report mm. about who Highwater really was. And it turns out, of course, he was not indigenous. His real name was Gregory Markopoulos. Um, and, and so Hank wrote a, a brilliant, lengthy expose that really outed uh, 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 Marco Pulis. Um and so that was one of the other things that he did when he had time. I mean, he was doing so many things, so many incredibly important things, uh, but he also found time to investigate this guy because he was pulling in boatloads of money, right, from PBS and from other right. uh, other news right. uh, organs, uh, and to expose him like that was really just uh, just brilliant, and he did it in a way that there was no way to question. Uh, you know uh, how 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 good it was. So I, and I there weren't that was, and there weren't other people doing that kind of work in those days. Uh, I mean, now we time, hear every no. day the uh -uh. pretendant and movement and things like that. But but we're right. talking early 1970s. Mm -hmm. Exactly. I want to thank everybody who joined our show today as we celebrated the legacy of Hank Adams, Suzanne Harjo, Dr. David E. Wilkins, Mark Trahant, Natalie Charlie, and Lois Adams Charlie. Please tune in to NAC again tomorrow when we take a look at the work toward healing from the 1879 Fort Robinson Massacre. Until then, stay strong, stay sovereign. I'm Sean Spruce. This program is supported by AmeriCorps VISTA. You can kickstart your career by joining thousands of AmeriCorps members in the VISTA program serving to alleviate poverty. AmeriCorps members help organizations make change right in their own community. A service opportunity that fits your ambition can be found at AmeriCorps.gov VISTA today. That's A-M-E-R-I-C-O-R-P-S dot G-O-V slash V-I-S-T-A. OCO, Happy New Year. Now is a great time to start new habits that will keep you healthy. Eating right, getting plenty of exercise, and enough sleep are key to a healthy lifestyle. Talk with your health care provider about changes you can make to let the new year be one of your best years. For more information, contact your local Indian health care provider or visit healthcare.gov. A message from the Centers for Medicare and Medicaid Services. Native America Calling is produced in the Annenberg National Native Voice Studios in Albuquerque, New Mexico by Kwanek Broadcast Corporation, a native nonprofit media organization. Funding is provided by the Corporation for Public Broadcasting, 
with support from the Public Radio Satellite Service. Music is by Brent Michael Davids. Native Voice One, the Native American Radio Network.